Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, with a very powerful episode today. We are talking about a new memoir from Michelle Porter entitled Scratching River. This memoir revolves around Michelle's brother and the search for a home for him. He was diagnosed autistic and schizophrenic. And when he turned 18, it was a challenge for the family to find somewhere that would be safe for him to live. And the memoir ties that in with Michelle's own personal family history. And and as she was driving around with her family, trying to find a safe place for her brother, she felt this connection to her ancestors and the connection to the land as they drove around. And it's really powerful, the connections that that she made. And you get a sense in reading the book just how cathartic it was for her to write it. But also as a reader, you you get drawn in and you can feel the, the emotion that's at the same time, the book also gets into this really fascinating history of Michelle's great-grandfather and and that generation of Métis people and and what they were going through, what their relationship with the land was. It it really just is a a wonderful book that ties together so many different components into what was, for me, just a wonderful read. So after I went through the book, I I was so looking forward to talking with Michelle about not only the contents of the book, but the experience of writing it. So I I was so excited to have the opportunity to speak with her and very much enjoyed this conversation. I hope you will as well. So let's get right into my chat with Michelle Porter. All right. And Michelle Porter joins me now from St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Michelle, how are you today? I'm good. It's a little bit rainy here today, but (laughs) it's March. That's right. Yeah. March in Newfoundland and St. John's better than february and january though right it's <laughs> definitely definitely yeah. we can see the light here now <laughs> yes you know i go back and forth the coldest i've ever been is either zero in vancouver or minus 15 in st john's when i was out there and it was one of those rare days where it got really really cold in st john's and the wind was blowing i quite literally ran to my car after having been outside for about 10 minutes, my hands were so raw and cold. I don't know how you do it every year. Well, I grew up in Alberta and I grew up playing and even running out in minus 30 degree weather, like it was not much of anything. And I moved here and minus 15 with the wind and the humidity, it cuts right through you. And I'm an indoor person here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's something about that. It's, It's so stereotypical, but it's so true. The dry cold is so much easier to deal with than that you damp dress cold. For it. Yes. Yeah. When you get on the coasts, uh, it's, it's very difficult. So I'm glad to know that things are starting to look a little better uh, weather-wise out there in, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Of course, we are here to talk about your new book, Scratching River. And uh, congratulations on it. Uh, as I said before we started to record, you know, these projects always take a long time and, and can be challenging, particularly a project where you have such a strong personal investment in it. This isn't a story that you have just 
researched as this impartial outsider third party that this is a very personal story to you and your family so let's just get into the the broad strokes of it before we get into some of the specifics how do you think of this book? You know, I, I set off the top some of the main themes and some of the, the work that goes into it, as well as the various familial stories that are included. But for you as the person who did the work, who wrote it, did some of the research, went through all the material, how do you frame this book and how would you explain it to somebody else who's going to be coming to it and reading it? I actually think of this book as all my relations. Um, it's the way it came about, the way I thought of it as I was bringing in the river, an ancestor, uh, you know, from the late uh, 1800s, a Métis ancestor, and telling it through the stories my mother and my sisters told me and, and that, that sort of conversation. It's, I didn't mean to write about my brother. I didn't, I hadn't intended to, I didn't sit down and think, oh, you know, there's this big story that happened to me when I was 14 and he turned 18 and, um, you know, and, and I, I should write about this. I, I meant just to write about the ancestor Louis Goulet uh, and, and about the movement across the land. As I sat down to write about that, I kept having these memories of going to visit my brother who has the dual diagnosis of schizophrenia and autism. And was in a child, you know, was in a, a, a really quite wonderful home for children from the time he was nine till the time he was 18. And we were always visiting him. And the, the Louis Goulet stories of traveling in the Red River cart uh, following the, you know, the Métis bison hunt really were so evocative for me uh, that I was transported to being in the back of a car traveling the Métis homeland, but to see my brother. That's an interesting connection because on the surface, you're right. Like to me, when I when it was presented to me, I thought, how do these things all relate to each other? It doesn't quite make sense. But you're right. In the course of the book, everything does get related back and forth. So let's start then with that that starting point of your ancestor, Louis Goulet. What is the connection to him? And where did you find all of this great material that is incorporated into the book? And and how did you come across the story and and feel comfortable telling that story yourself? My uh, auntie, my mother's cousin in, in BC, she, I'd been doing some research on music, the, the traditional Métis music, you know, pulling out of her closet the very first Métis music ever recorded on, on, on record. And she told me, you have to get your hands on this book. He, uh, Louis Goulet is the cousin of my great-great-grandfather great 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 grandfather as we go back <laughs> um so uh, the goulets the metis goulets are pretty much all related and uh, back it near the end of his life actually in the early 1900s a couple of researchers took down louis goulet's oral history they just they they, they transcribed it wrote it down and uh, kept it and eventually they published it in uh, book form uh, in French because of course it wasn't didn't come down in English and the English version is when I got vanishing spaces um, and it's you know a beautiful piece of history a moment in time one of the best Métis storytellers of course so I was I was given said she said you you have to read this do what you can with it and I just fell in love with his descriptions of the landscape and his descriptions of moving. And 
I couldn't get it out of my head. And I, and I wanted to write. I, I have an approach to writing. It's arts-based arts research. This approach to writing that is looking at what is the conversation I can develop with whatever, you know, whatever the subject is, of course. But in this case, it's a little bit like you have some of the, right now there's been a couple of First Nation musicians who have been making music in response to and making music with old recordings. For me, this is the writing version of it, you know, making a story with the, you know, with um, this, this old, old oral history. Yeah, and the idea of the movement and the, the land and bison and that very traditional aspect of life that has been part of oral histories for so long, it, it's interesting to think about those stories and it being passed down the oral history of that. And is that something that you had been familiar with before coming across this book and just how much of your own personal background of those Mm -hmm. stories had you heard before coming into contact with, with this particular version, this particular book, and how did that potentially influence your approach to these memoirs? Yeah. See, that that is that's a that's a very good question because for me growing up it was I always lived I I always say I grew up in my mother's stories very much and her stories of uh her experiences growing up out in the bush and of the stories of my grandfather uh my great-grandfather and my grandmother who formed, you know, one of these traditional Métis music groups, um the the Red River Echoes and their experiences moving from performing in the city to living out, you know, living out on the land in, in a variety of ways. Now, Louis Gouley's memoirs took me even, you know, one step further back. So, you know, my great-grandfather wasn't, by that time, the, the Buffalo Hump was over. There wasn't, there weren't, you know, uh, trains of wagon carts moving across the <laughs> land, or, of, of the Red River carts moving across the land. So, for me, it was also fascinating to better understand the world that my grandmother and my great grandfather came from, and how that shaped their movement back onto the land and and their decision to live for for a long part of the time, you know, on the land. And my mother carrying that tradition over with us, and we grew up in the city. You know, we didn't we didn't have much. We didn't have much money. We were part of that that urban Naiti group, but as much as we could, she took us out onto the land and so yeah his story really resonated with with those memories and I think not just the memories of seeing my brother but also the memories of being out on the land with my mother and just feeling that close relationship that Louis Goulet wrote about and you know it it was it's just really incredible to see uh, you know, in the book, there are those maps where I overlay the historical maps with with modern maps, and I and and that's what this writing experience, that's what this book, that's what this you know this you know one way of that that two eyed seeing can be is is seeing the history um, and seeing you know the stories, the truth of the stories that your parents have always told you, but also or that in my case, my mother that my mother always told me. And um, and also the life that we're living today and how we bring that into, you know, into modern day. There's a there's a, a, a way of playing Métis music, a crooked way of playing Métis music and 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 Métis dance that I it's what it's scratching river follows that form. So within, you know, you can play the Red River jig um, on the fiddle and you get to a certain point and it's called the turn. So 
up until then, the dancers and the musicians, they're playing the traditional, playing the traditional phrases, or they're, they're doing the traditional dance steps, the ones that, you know, they've been doing for generations. And then you get to the turn, and that's the chance for the future, for the next generation uh, to come into the dance. And that dance and that music form just makes room for improvisation and for the next generation to tell their story and to tell, you know, to, to make sense of the past and, and, and where we're pointing it into the future. And in, in, in the way I, I braided different time periods within Scratching River, that was also my intent is, is that the, you have the past and then you have, you know, what, what it can mean into the future. And, you know, it, it, there's some tough stories in there, including what happened to my brother, but the overall meaning of this story for me as a, as, as a person who, you know, who, who created the story is, is one of the power of healing through time, uh, the power of healing with the land and with history. And that's where I, that's where my dance took me. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting that you talk about the next generation weaving things together because this has come up in the show before where you're taking oral histories and putting it into a textual form. And that changes a little bit about the format of the story, obviously, and potentially how it can be told because things on paper don't translate the same way as an oral history does. So how much of that process did you go through? And what was the what was that like for you in taking the oral histories, both the ones that had previously been written down, the stories that also you got from your mom and other family members? How did that process go? And how much of just taking the oral, put it into a textual is part of that process that you mentioned of creating that for the next generation and, and putting your own I don't want to say spin on it, but your own version on it and adding your, adding your layer to these existing stories. It, that's sort of the, the way I went about it. I, I, I took not only, of course, Louis Goulet's collected oral history, but, you know, I, uh, there's conversations with my mother, conversations with my sister, and very, very much um, those conversations stayed true to the conversations that we actually had. Part of my process was in speaking with my mother, I would, you know, ask permission to record it as we were talking. And um, I had just a bunch of little bits of, of recorded conversations and I transcribed them. Now, an initial version of this book was, you know, was a little bit like a, you know, a, um, a play with uh, just the text of a, of, a, of a play. And what I then did was take it into bringing the reader into the conversation um, in a couple of different ways. But the word, the diction is very much true to how they would speak it. I, how my mother and my sister and even, even, even Louis Goulet, I just played with, with those words um, and made it a little bit more informal to invite the reader in because I wanted it to be a conversation with the reader uh, as well. And there's a point where, with, particularly with my sister, the decision to make that, that conversation a you, so it becomes, you know, do you remember? Um, I'm constantly talking to my sister. Now, she never quite answers back um, in, in many of the pieces, but that also becomes a you to the reader and, and brings the reader a bit, a bit more intimately, I think, I think into the text um, and into the thinking um, and the conversations that go on. So for me, it was that, that conversational aspect to it that I wanted to preserve, I wanted to keep, and that that was also something, you're right, for, for the next generation to come back and look at and go, 
here's, you know, here's what they were thinking and feeling about the world even at that point. That's one of the hardest things to do in writing is, to me at least, is to create that conversational tone to invite the reader in and to make it so that whoever's reading it does feel like they're part of it. Because obviously when you're writing and reading, like it is a one-way thing, right? That you as the writer can't in real time obviously respond to the reader, but to have a reader feel that way, to have to feel invited in and to feel part of a conversation, very challenging. And I agree that the, the book accomplishes that uh, very well. And uh, another thing that's difficult for writers to do is to incorporate some of the more potentially challenging or upsetting personal stories that come into the story and to do it in a way that, again, doesn't, I mean, I don't want to say make the reader uncomfortable because certainly some of the stuff will make people uncomfortable, but to do so in a way that, as we'll talk about a little later, is hopeful and is is loving and and creates a, a real sense of survival. So I, I want to start with, on this part of it, with your brother uh, and his story. And you, you mentioned earlier that you didn't intend to write about that. And it, it brought you back to your experience as a 14-year-old driving around uh, on the land to, to go and, and see him. But how would you frame that for again someone who's coming into it and saying you know we talked we just talked about the stories of your uh, of louis goulet and, and his memoirs and then we have the the story of your brother who as you mentioned diagnosed as schizophrenic and with autism and living in, in a group home you say a great group home from the time he was nine like how do you describe him and how much of this story and the the way in which it gets presented to the reader, like how much of it is a story of him and his experience versus you and your family's experience having him in the situation that he was living through? You know, I, I think the whole book is a story of survival and survival through love, both you know, we're seeing right now a wonderful, wonderful resurgence of, of Métis people. So linking that to Louis Goulet's story of sort of the end of the buffalo hunt and a time of transition for the Métis people. We have survived because we love the land, we love our people, and we love the culture. My brother, you know, and linking that to, to my brother's story, I think it perhaps came from that same place of, of, of love. So as I was writing in conversation and uh, with Louis Goulet's story and having those memories, of course, going to see my brother. It was like this 14-year-old girl sat down beside me and I discovered, she, she said, I have a story to tell and I had to tell it. So it, it was almost she came to me and, and, you know, I, we've had, we've had, uh, you know, lots of things happen, different things happen to our lives. And this story happened to my brother. So I didn't realize that there was a 14 year old inside who had still been traumatized by this. So in a sense, writing this is that whole story of how do you reach that other side of these difficult mm. times? So my brother, when he turned 18, the, the story picks up or focuses quite a bit on, on when he turned 18, he entered into um, a home for adult people with, you know, mental, uh, mental handicaps. Now that's, especially in the time, at the time, back in the 1990s, there's more now, but it's a difficult thing for parents of, a parents of adult children with mental handicap 
it, it can be very, very difficult to find a home that's suitable, that has enough supports, that you feel safe with. Now, this place my mom, my mother found, she did feel safe with it. She thought it was great. Within three months, he was in the hospital with third degree burns, you know, up to, you know, up to his knees and all kinds of wounds all over himself. Now, my brother was this, is this strong, spirited, free love, freedom loving. He never did anything anybody wanted. And I was a shy child. So I admired this. <laughs> so my brother couldn't speak. He didn't speak. And he uh, had quite a few, you know, quite a few, uh, what might be considered wild behaviors was difficult for workers to, you know, keep within bounds of, you know, society, if we're taking him outside. And I adored all this. I just admired it so much. So this story is a story of me having a conversation with my brother's healing so that I could take my 14 year old along and go, oh, catch up with him. He's already, he's already gone that path. And, and uh, because he had so many people love him. And it was me actually just realizing that that, you know, that part of me didn't know had been sort of trapped there frozen there um or uh you know like a river dried up and and moving you know moving that along opening that up and there's been so much research especially recently about trauma and how so much of of trauma can be passed along to family members and in some cases it's it's even worse mentally for those who are deeply connected to the person, right? Whereas the person themselves might have an easier time processing than those around them for a variety of reasons. And certainly there's a wide array of literature on this. And it strikes me as that's, that's part of this, is that when you're around the person who is, is going through it, your concern is them and you're trying to help them and, and you're showing love and support for them. And rarely do people take time to process it themselves? Because, well, yes, it didn't directly happen to you. It is a traumatic experience for you to see someone who you love go through that. And that's what you see in this book is that it, it takes you this long to really process it. And as you say, take that 14-year-old girl with you on that journey of healing. And for you, just it, it comes across in the book, to me at least, that this is a somewhat cathartic experience for you as you're going through and writing it is that the case as you're writing it do you kind of feel it sort of that outlet as you're going through writing the book well in this this book uh has remained perhaps a, a unique approach because i decided to really trust and honor that that 14 year old voice as an aside maybe throughout my life some of the books I have most loved have been books in which people write very raw, real form about difficult things that have happened to and they've come to the other side about, about, you know, uh, about trauma and writing very honestly about it. So I wrote this book as I was discovering and feeling this trauma, as I realized that as I, as I sort of opened that up and saw that there was this 14 year old inside of me who still saw the world through those quite scared and bitter probably eyes and, and and she's a teenager so you know and that so there was yeah. these these double pair of eyes and yeah so the writing of this book was for me an act of healing when i got to the process of editing i had healed but i had i was in a very different spot i could not i i when i tried to tinker with the words and i was writing from the point of view of an adult who had healed 
And I realized I had to back off that. And, and I decided not to change the point of view, not to write it from that lovely, safe place at first, but to have that honest awakening of that 14-year-old as she was healing, you know, and, and inside me and integrating. I mean, I don't, I, for a while, I had that sense of two people inside, two pairs of eyes inside of me. And, you know, I don't have that anymore. So it was incredibly odd to go back and edit this book. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, it's one thing when you're writing a book of like a history book and you're like, well, okay, you can go back. And, and people say this all the time. Take some time, go back out with fresh eyes and that might improve it. In this case, yeah, you don't want that. You, you want to have that genuine raw emotion and be true to that voice, as you say. And editing on its own can be a tedious experience, but doing it uh, within that environment, I'm sure was an extraordinary challenge. Oh, very much so. <laughs> yes, it was. It was incredible. And it was part of, though, what led me to realize how much the act of writing this book and, and you know, even just organizing it those, those and those maps were an important part of, of that healing and of shifting those eyes. So if by the end of the book, the reader comes to the point where they're seeing the girl and the story through these new eyes, it's the same, you know, it was by the end that I began to see, you know what, my brother was loved back into healing. And, and so, so can I, I can follow him there. You know, he went, you know, he, he was surrounded by many, many people who loved him. And, and I, you know, one of another aspect of this is writing a story about something that happened to somebody who can't speak for themselves. So how, how do you write that? And in this sense, I say that my brother spoke through all of the people whose love he evoked. Like he was really, my brother is still, but especially when he was younger, very, very good at getting people to love him, which is, 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 you know, a really beautiful trait. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And being surrounded by that. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's interesting when you say like, yeah, can't speak for himself, but kind of does, right? Not in words necessarily, but in exactly. actions and, yeah. and bringing people to him. Now, another thing that's uh, really interesting about the book is the idea of the, the river itself, river as metaphor. And certainly they're going into the book. I thought to myself, oh, this is interesting because Water is used often metaphorically in literature, usually though in the form of rain, right? That, that's the most common one, right? It rains, everything is cleansed, we move on, right? That is, you know, <laughs> at the end of every Disney movie, when the villain is vanquished, it's going to rain at some point. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's interesting to think of the river as a metaphor uh, in a very different way and for, certainly for, for very different purposes. So how did you come to that uh, and, and in the incorporation of the river in the way that it is through the story and the metaphorical side of telling the layeredness of these stories uh, through the metaphor of the river? Well, I really believe in learning that we can learn a lot about ourselves by observing the land by, 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 and, and build a closer relationship with, with the land around us. I think we live very disconnected from the land and we've forgotten how to learn from the land and how to have that, that relationship, that understanding. So part of the research for this is, as, you know, as Louis Goulet in, in the, in, in his memoirs was writing about, uh, rivers or being close to a river of some sort. Um, he was born, you know, along Scratching River. He was born along and uh, close to uh, the Red River in, you know, in what is now Manitoba. And there's all the rivers there. I began researching them and I came across an article just about river morphology. And 
I really fell in love with the language. I really fell in love with this knowledge of the river as something that uh, can split apart and still be one, <laughs> has many, many threads, but also this, this idea of, of um, you know, it, it's, it's the riverbed that really shapes how a river, how a river moves across the land uh, and, and how it holds it. Um, it's the riverbed that, that either, whether it erodes or whether it turns it one way or another. Really for me as well was the idea of um, the river and the river braids being quite a bit like my, myself and my siblings, my brothers and sisters. Um, and that, you know, we, we have at different points in our lives gone, a, uh, gone down different, you know, gone to different riverbeds, gone, you know, gone in different ways, but, you know, always, always coming back. And, and the healing idea for me was that, you know, you've read anything on trauma too, you, do, you know a little bit about that idea of freezing. Now, for me, it felt like that braided river that had just run itself dry and didn't have, didn't have, you know, didn't, didn't have enough flow, enough, enough water to, to keep going. And that sort of this act of healing brought, you know, brought the waters to a flood. And then I was able to get that, that river flowing again. So there's, there's multiple ways I pulled that through, but it really just began falling in love with the power of a river and the river's meander uh, across the land and, and how that river, um, how that river moves through and around and across obstacles. And I, you know, that's very, very much how we people deal with or can deal with the the obstacles, the hurts, the traumas we encounter in life as well. Yeah, and it's interesting to think too. And I, I was thinking too, my brother loves canals, right? He just, for whatever reason, loves canals. I was thinking too, as I was going through it, you know, the difference between rivers and canals, right? Like canals, man-made, we want to control everything. They tend to be in straight lines, but as the river, the natural occurring, yeah, it, it meanders, it goes off, it can branch off, uh, things can can change and it, it just doesn't have the same control as a canal. And that, that sort of struck me as like uh, on the, the personal note of, of someone who, being related to someone who just talks about canals more than anybody else I've ever met. Like it, it, it's interesting to think I've about it in, in that sense. Talk about canals. <laughs> yes. Right. right? Yes. <laughs> well, I was talking with uh, Lee Miracle before her, her passing about rivers and she mentioned that she's a river person. Now she's from the West Coast of BC, and I, you know, I'm from a river in, you know, my people are from a river in Manitoba. And I said, and she said, yeah, we just I'm crashing. And if you know anything about author Lee Miracle, she she was crashing through her life and and in a very positive healing way, crashing through everybody else's life. But I wasn't familiar with BC rivers, so I said, but I thought of a river as slow moving a little bit more perhaps flooding now and then. So, well, we're BC rivers. I'm a BC river just crashing down the mountains right. <laughs> so, yeah. to, into, you know, into the lake or the, the lake below. So, yeah, it's, I think, I think as people, we really do identify much, much more uh, with, with land and, and the, the, the natural world around us. Normally, naturally we do this. Yeah. We're kind of inhibited in ourselves because it, it seems almost silly. <laughs> right. Yeah, it can, but it's interesting too to think of. I mean, I live in Ottawa, and one of the things that so many people who live in the city talk about is you can get out to 
trails really quickly. You can get out to the woods or, you know, we do have the river going through that separates Ottawa and Gatineau and you can kind of go down a little bit to get away from the city and, and you can be on why there's a lot of lakes around it. And there's just a, a power to it. And there's certainly it's relaxing. It can be healing both in a, from a traumatic sense, but also just in a day to day sense, like you're going through your life and you can get outside, be with nature. It, there, there's something to it that is peaceful, uh, loving, that, that just makes you feel whole in a sense. Yeah. And of course, it's, you know, the Red River that's forever associated with Métis people, um, you know, who I'm descended from. And so it's the same in a sense for the, for, for, you know, the Métis people have encountered huge difficulties and yet have kept that river uh, flowing and flooding. <laughs> the Red River is one of the most, it floods quite, it can flood quite a bit in seasons. Um, and I think a part of the book is also sort of speaking out to people to remember that we do um, we do uh, have this process that we need to go through for healing, and that it is very much I think related to uh, to cycles of water. Um, however, you some people probably you know I, I'm living here in St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador. Most people here associate with tides, and they think of the tides mm. as their healing. <laughs> so right. you know it's but but that but that you know there's really um, the opportunity to uh, open up those parts of yourself and you know flood them, let them flood with. Uh, that the memories or the feelings or you know uh, uh, um, uh, the trauma and then let it you know let it flow away or let the tide go out or however it works well I'm not sure how that works with a canal I can't I can't reach for the canal metaphor here. <laughs> the yeah. canal's a little tougher yeah. to pull that off but another yeah. thing too is I mean I walk along the canal here in Ottawa but especially in the winter you get great on a full moon is another one Right. When you can see like the full moon is out and very bright. Like that's another one that for me uh, is very it's cathartic just to stand there and look at it. It's, it's very powerful mm-hmm. and can be very moving even in the middle of the city. So, you know, there, there's ways to do it. And wh- whatever people's connection is to nature is is theirs and whatever that relationship, whatever it does for you uh, is great because very oftentimes it is healing, as you say, and, and full of love. So for as much as this book is is a story about you and your family and, and your ancestor, there's a universality to it. And I think the really broad themes that are applicable to anybody who comes to the book. So again, it is Scratching River. Uh, Michelle Porter, if people want to pick up the book or your previous book, which uh, very highly reviewed, uh, an award-winning book. So if, if people want more about your overall work, uh, where can they get some more information? And how would you encourage them to pick up a copy of the book? You can get uh, a copy of the book. You can get it online. It will be available in any bookstore as well uh, coming up. Approaching Fire is also uh, available online with uh, Breakwater Books, but also with with um, all the online booksellers. And um, a book of poetry out there as well. So <laughs> there's a few different ways. Um, I have a novel coming out in spring 2023 with Penguin. So look out for that as well. <laughs> All right. Uh, a lot of exciting stuff. And uh, as I said at the top, I uh, certainly encourage everybody to check this one out again. Scratching River. Michelle Porter, thank you so much for joining me today.
Thank you for having me. So there you have it, my chat with Michelle Porter. I thank her for her time. And again, the book is Scratching River. And uh, as we said in the show, I, I think you'll enjoy it. I did. And, and as we talked about, it really is a book. It, it can be tough in parts, but really is about love, survival, and hope. And to a certain extent, those are all very universal things that we can all benefit from. So if you're interested, you will not be disappointed. So that will do it for this week, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast, do likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff helps other people find the show, keeps us growing here on the History Slam. You can also head on over to activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are available on the podcast tab. Last week, Sarah E.K. Smith, Kirsty Robertson talking about From Remote Stars. That exhibition is still open out there at Museum London. Of course, you can check out their podcast. Before that, Daniel Ross on Young Street in Toronto. Bethany Kilcrease on Falsehood Fallacy, how we can deal with online misinformation. A lot of great stuff over the past few weeks and some other great stuff coming in the weeks to come that we've already recorded, but always looking for new ideas. So if you want to let me know what you'd like to hear on the show, historyslam at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. As that will do it for this week. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. We will be back with you again next week with some more new stuff. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. 